welcome back to another edition of the Mintcast, the podcast by Mint Press News. This show is made possible by supporters like you as we face shadow banning on many, many platforms and the crackdown on independent anti-war journalism keeps going. We ask you that uh, you can help us by um, going to Indiegogo and helping us out on our yearly funding um, uh, drive. The links are down in the below. Uh, so if you do want to do that, uh, do check it out. Now, it is unfortunately that time of year again when eyes are drawn to the election cycle. On each occasion, the two major parties seem to offer up less and less appealing candidates, all the while doing the bidding of Wall Street, big tech, and the defense and energy industries. However, one third party candidate is already causing quite a stir. Dr. Cornell West, the radical philosopher, public intellectual, and activist, has signaled his intention to become the Green Party's presidential nomination. Could West's legendary charisma and lifetime of tireless advocacy of social justice issues help him break through the two-party geopoly? Our guest today is Dr. Jill Stein, a two-time Green Party presidential nominee herself, who is now serving as Dr. West's campaign manager. Welcome to the show, Jill. Thank you so much, Alan. It's an honor to be here. Well, the honor's all mine. Yeah. Um, so I guess I'd like to talk to you today about third parties, the Green Party, and U.S. elections and politics in general. Um, so you've uh, been very vocal in your support for Dr. West. Um, in fact, as I said, you're now his campaign manager. Um, what is it about Cornell that makes you think he's such a good candidate for president? And actually, how did you become his manager as well? So, you know, as you mentioned, he's a renowned intellectual and activist, a dedicated public servant, and a very fearless voice for for social, economic, racial, climate justice, you name it across the board. Uh, you know, his intention is to abolish poverty and dismantle empire. And he is, um, you know, he's one of the foremost spokespeople. He's been out there on the streets with the movements, getting arrested, opposed evictions, uh, you name it. He's been there and he has just impeccable credibility. He's an eloquent spokesperson. He goes way back, actually, with the Green Party as well, going all the way back to Ralph Nader's campaign uh, in the year 2000. During my 2016 run, he was a very uh, integral part of the campaign. And I had uh, actually tried to get him to be a running mate, to be the vice presidential candidate. And he was not ready to, you know, stick his neck out the way that you do when you actually move into electoral politics at the time. So when when I heard that he was running and like just about everybody else, I didn't know beforehand. And when he threw his hat into the ring, I think he announced on a Monday, on a Wednesday, he did an interview with Amy Goodman that made it clear that all was not well in that campaign. And he was kind of being blindsided by some things he hadn't anticipated. So at that time, uh, Ajamu Baraka, who was my running mate in 2016, and Chris Hedges and I all kind of put our heads together and said, we really need to um, come in and offer uh, Dr. West a different way forward. And we did the very next day. I think our conversation was on a Saturday. And, you know, he changed course uh, to his credit. And it's really been a very exciting whirlwind ever since. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I became campaign manager because uh, because I had played a major role in convincing him to move over. And, you know, so then there he was, he had moved over to the Green Party and he needed a whole new team. And so I felt, well, I'm kind of, you know, uh, responsible for this happening. So I really have to step up to the plate, which I did, you know, at the time as an interim campaign manager. And whether I will be campaign manager forever or just until the team has completed its transition, it remains to be seen. You know, usually campaigns get set up for months prior to a launch. 
So we've been kind of making up for lost time and just rushing to set up the infrastructure and move over the the finances and the FEC compliance and all kinds of stuff like that. So I'd say that the transition is not fully completed, but it's really been um, a very wild and wonderful ride. It's not it's like no other um, you know national campaign that I've ever been involved with. Well, that's great. More power to you. Um... So you mentioned earlier a couple of key policies that uh, I noticed on Cornell West's website as well. Uh, out, out on um, his uh, election website, he lays out three priority policies. And um, one of them is dismantling empire. Number two is unleashing democracy. And number three is saving the planet. Uh, could you explain what those three policies are in more detail? Because, um, yeah, the proof would be in, in putting on what he really means by that. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, what he means is pretty much what he's been saying all along. You know, he's a completely um, fearless voice and he says what needs to be said. And now that he's running for office, he hasn't changed his tune at all. So he wants to massively uh, cut military spending to uh, break up non-defensive alliances uh, like NATO uh, and AUKUS. Uh, he wants to dismantle the network of 800 military bases around the world. He wants to sever the link between uh, U.S. foreign policy and corporate profits. Um, uh, he wants to bring uh, the U.S. to the community of nations instead of, you know, a foreign policy based on uh, military might and uh, domination. You know, he's really looking for a foreign policy based on international law human rights and diplomacy. Uh, and as part of dismantling empire, um, you know, he's also looking at uh, abolishing uh, nuclear weapons. And then uh, for unleashing democracy, you know, he really views democracy as uh, economic democracy as well as political democracy. So it's very much about an economic bill of human rights, meeting the needs for healthcare, housing, um, uh, education as human rights and, you know, uh, abolishing student debt, ensuring that education, uh, higher education is, uh, available for free, at least in the public education realm, uh, abolishing poverty and homelessness, um, and, you know, ensuring that we have a more, uh, functioning democracy instead of this, absolute crisis of democracy that we have right now in virtually every dimension. So, you know, that includes um, money out of politics, uh, uh, democratizing our uh, unaccountable monopolies, uh, inserting uh, basically worker control, the rights to, a to strong unions and uh, good living wage jobs, um, and uh, reforms like ranked choice voting so that people can actually vote for what they want instead of against what they most fear. And then finally, uh, saving the planet. He wants to fight back against uh, the ecological catastrophe that we're facing, um, the corporate greed of the fossil fuel companies. In fact, his most recent press release uh, announced the uh, nationalization that he would uh, nationalize our fossil fuel companies, which, you know, urgently needs to be done, uh, address and eliminate environmental racism, uh, and ensure that we have a fighting chance for the future of life on the planet. So that's kind of your basic, quick overview. Well, I could go in so many directions for that. Thank you very much for that. Um, I think I'll probably start with dismantling the empire. Um, just uh, earlier this summer, Dr. West called for an end to NATO. He called it, and I quote, an expanding instrument of U.S. global power. Do you share that view? Um, if so, why would dismantling NATO be advantageous for everyone? Well, you know, dismantling NATO is sort of the flip side of our current um, militarized foreign policy and a budget in which we're spending over half of the discretionary um, congressional budget on 
war and militarism. So, you know, we've spent uh, over $115 billion funding everything in Ukraine, including its government, as well as its war and and the weapons that keep accelerating uh, and escalating this extremely dangerous conflict. Uh, so that policy not only puts us you know, very much in in the target hairs, everyone in the target hairs of potential uh, nuclear war, um, which we're really butting up against. Um, but it also completely uh, exhausts our budget. We're funding, you know, uh, all these uh, armaments, F-16s uh, and so on uh, for Ukraine, but we are not funding the uh, child tax credit and throwing millions of children back into poverty in this country. We've just allowed some 15 million people to be stripped from the roles of um, uh, of healthcare by allowing the Medicaid expansion during COVID to basically um, to terminate. Untold numbers of people who are going to lose their access to food stamps and so on. So, you know, our urgent needs here in this country are not being met while our military budget is totally off the charts. You know, a military budget in which the Pentagon cannot even keep track of its $3.5 trillion worth of assets. And in its latest, you know, accounting could not identify where 61% of our military assets even are, you know. So, it's like this is outrageous. Who's benefiting from this kind of policy that ensures we have a strong NATO and we're funding NATO, but NATO is really creating all sorts of conflicts uh, across the world that really don't need to happen. What is NATO doing um, you know, in South America, uh, threatening China, um, in Iraq and Libya? This is not the North Atlantic which NATO was intended uh, uh, to defend from what was at the time a very strong alliance with the Soviet Union. Well, that doesn't exist anymore, not the Soviet Union and not the military alliance. So there's no need for NATO. It's extremely dangerous, and it is um, endangering and impoverishing us in this country and around the world. So we all benefit from ending these alliances whose purpose you know, really seems to be uh, satisfying the military industrial complex and its vast network of campaign contributions and lobbyists. And I guess it's like how rapper Tupac Shakur said long ago, he said, um, they've got money for war, but can't feed the poor. And that's always what I go back to when I think about these things. Every single missile, every single bullet that we spend money on is... Uh, food taken from a baby's mouth in in a sense really and and in fact you know to just put a number on that uh a recent study just came out i believe from the university of california system showing that poverty which is really the flip side of this endless you know infinite military budget poverty in this country is the fourth leading cause of death actually uh in the united states so this is you know, what we can't fund and what is deprioritized in order to put, you know, bullets and bombs first and nuclear weapons, it not only endangers us in this vast expanding network of war and this uh, network of of alliances that can just explode like uh, as it did in World War One. You know, in fact, we are in a protracted war right now, which keeps escalating by the day. Um, you know, that just leaves us uh, impoverished and really struggling here in this country. Yeah, I always say poverty is very expensive, you know, just in terms of trying to deal with things like homelessness, the emergency services, the police, ambulances, hospitals, the amount of money that's spent on uh, trying to deal with like, you know, things like homelessness is absolutely astronomical and would be much better spent actually providing people with homes uh, and just getting them back on their feet. But of course, that's not really the the sort of main aspect of why it's hurting us. I mean, the, just the amount of man hours and just the amount of um, of lost potential for all of these people who, instead of you know doing something beautiful with their lives, whether it's art or science or whatever, uh, they're just spent 
you know, uh, desperately trying to scratch around, trying to make a couple of dollars so they can eat. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, when uh, Dr. West launched his uh, his campaign, he, you know, he had made a, a launch video that began with the words, uh, in these bleak times, you know, in these bleak times, I have decided to uh, essentially further the movement for, uh, for justice uh, through through uh the through contending for and contesting for for the presidency but that really is the framework i think that that uh really speaks to our times that we are in these incredibly bleak times whether you're looking at education and you know the unaffordability that fact that we have an entire generation in fact more than a generation that's walking around now with this crushing burden of student debt that simply can't be paid and what would be a better you know, economic stimulus package for our country, you know, and larger uh, world, in fact, than to harness, you know, unleash that creativity. Because right now it's just being poured into trying to pay back uh, student debt. And, you know, it's just, uh, it's just astounding. And people are kind of up against the wall, whether it's, you know, your the gig economy and these terrible jobs, the housing that you cannot afford, 40% of Americans are, uh, I should say 40% of renters are actually uh, technically qualified as stressed. They cannot pay their rent, um, you know, without severe economic stress. And, and it's not only the uh, potential for eviction, but it's that rents keep going up and up and up. In Seattle, I think uh, rents have gone up 100% in just the last decade. And so people are constantly having to move and sort of put their lives on hold and find another place to live. It's like we, we're a country of refugees internally. We're refugees basically from economic persecution by this rapacious oligarchy uh, represented by the two major political parties. And, you know, that's why you know, we don't have to convince people that uh, we're in a crisis. You know, people just see crisis, you know, every hour of their, uh, you know, of their lives, really. So we really are at a breaking point. And, you know, to me, the exciting thing about this campaign uh, with Dr. West is that it just harnesses more momentum that we than we've ever seen into a um, uh, an alternative uh, political campaign that is really very well informed, really understands what the issues are and what the solutions are, and can help harness that momentum for change that we're really uh, witnessing now, like, you know, I've never seen in my life. Yeah, I mean, debt is an extraordinary method of control when you really think about it. If you if you uh, go to college and you graduate and you've got tens of thousands, maybe more than $100,000 uh, of debt, you can't really do what you want to do. You can't, you know, go and if you're, for instance, a lawyer, you can't go and work pro bono on cases that really appeal to you. You have to go and get a job at a law firm immediately. Or if you're working in any kind of business, really, you don't want to quit your job and pursue your passion because you've got to keep making those payments. And so ultimately, it keeps people in place. And it kind of feeds into this militarism as well, where young people mm -hmm. especially think, well, the only way I can go to college, perhaps, is by joining the military. And they're fed all sorts of half-truths about, you know, uh, how wonderful it's going to be that the uh, government's going to pay for their education, etc. But I don't want to keep harping on about the bad things uh, because I think we've diagnosed a lot of the problems already. Um, so what are the solutions here economically? What would a Green Party economic policy look like in practice? Yeah, so, you know, I think the overarching plan is is the Green New Deal that we discussed going back to uh, 2012 in my first presidential campaign. And then every presidential campaign from the Green Party has basically, you know, further uh, developed that concept. And, you know, the idea is that we can solve the economic crisis at the same time that we can solve the climate crisis. And um, this will cost some money to basically create an economic development program. Uh, but the cost of this, you know, economic development and rescuing the climate and our, you know, uh, complete uh, environmental systems across the board, you know, it guarantees our survival, you know, and the trajectory we're on now uh, is not survivable. And that's very expensive. You know, it's sort of like the ultimate expense is that we're, we're all kind of wiped out. Um, uh, and, you know, in addition to that, 
you know, specifically, we are talking about jobs, the guaranteed right to a job, and some 20 million jobs, uh, specifically in the renewable energy economy and in the um, the social justice economy. So we're talking about not only ensuring that we have the transition to solar and wind and geothermal and so on, that we have renewable, sustainable energy, uh, but we also have renewable, sustainable social systems, and we have social workers and healthcare uh, and um you know, and housing. And so all of this becomes a matter of massive uh, public works, essentially, to uh, ensure that our social needs are are first and foremost. And um, by the way, you know, I have to say here, I'm, I'm not um, solely speaking on behalf of Dr. West, but also on behalf of my uh, experience uh, in the Green Party. So uh, I don't want to you know, uh, presume that I'm representing his policies word for word, but you know, I can say that this is generally uh, where the where the Green Party is. And uh, one other point to make here is just that an economic bill of human rights is a key piece of the green economy and the Green New Deal as the Greens see it. So we're talking about healthcare as a human right through an improved Medicare for all system. We're talking about uh, guaranteed affordable housing with, you know, a, a tenant's bill of rights, with uh, rent control, uh, with massively uh, refurbished, reconstructed, expanded public housing and so on. Uh, free public higher education, um, uh, you know, family leave, parental leave, and so on, the full uh, spectrum of economic human rights, too. And and these are really, the American people support this, you know, in huge uh, majorities, too. So it's not like, oh, this is some advanced, uh, you know, radical uh, jolt to the American consciousness. No, in poll after poll, in, you know, in red states and blue states, these are sort of the basic rights that people are demanding right now. Yeah, I think it's amazing when you look at polling, even among Republicans, the sort of things that they would uh, sign off on, which, uh, yeah, leads me to say that <clears throat> I wonder a difficult question might be if these uh, ideas are so popular with the public, why isn't the Green Party really catching huge traction in terms of uh, big presidential elections then? Oh, well. You know, <laughs> um, you may have noticed that, um, you know, the uh, usual suspects, the Democratic Party attack dogs are full on the case right now. You know, they are terrified. Uh, if you look at polling, you see that people uh, are ready to split, you know, in unprecedented numbers. I think it's like 45 percent of Democrats that say they would seriously consider voting for a third party candidate even. Um uh, Gallup poll shows record high numbers. Uh, some 62% are calling for a third party option because the two parties have done such a poor job of representing the public interest. Uh, in terms of personal identification, the number of people who say that they identify as politically independent is twice the number who say they identify as a Democrat or a Republican. And you can go back in the um in the numbers in sort of the the numbers of who gets elected the democrats really began to lose the battle after obama bailed out the banks and threw families out of their homes in the mid the first midterm elections on uh, on obama's watch in 2010 what happened 1000 democratic seats were lost from state legislatures 1000 and some 65 uh, congressional seats in the House of Representatives were lost, and um, some, I think it's like 12 or 13 governorships were lost by the Democrats, and the same for um, elected representatives to the Senate. Wasn't the Greens that did that. That was the Democrats that did that. So they have already, I think they've already lost the confidence and the support of the American public which is why the smear campaigns have gone just off the charts. You know, I'm called a Russian asset, even though I was investigated for three years by the Senate Intelligence Committee, which wound up thanking me for my full cooperation and basically said there's nothing, there's no sign of anything untoward here. Um, 
uh, you know, I'm a Russian asset, really anybody who who threatens the uh, Democrats uh, hegemonies is essentially called a Russian asset. And um, uh, Dr. West is being called out now by James Carville and David Axelrod and all of the, you know, the attack dogs who are who are saying that, you know, we are spoilers. What are we spoilers of? You know, we seem to be spoilers of the political monopoly of these old white guys, you know, who are just quaking in their boots that they've, that their stranglehold on our political system uh, is under threat. And, you know, they keep that stranglehold in all kinds of ways, both the, uh, the, the silence and the collusion of mainstream media, of keeping us off the ballot, of uh, using fraud, actually, to throw us off the ballot when we have legitimately gotten on the ballot in Matthew Ho's Senate uh, campaign uh, two years ago. They actually had people impersonating the Green Party, calling up names that were on his uh, petition signatures to get on the ballot, they would call them and try to persuade them that the Green Party was telling them to take their names off of the uh, uh, off of the um, of the uh, signature petition. So you know, we're expecting uh, we're expecting them to throw the book at us. When Ralph Nader um, ran, I believe it was his two thousand. I want to say maybe his two thousand and four race. They simultaneously brought him into court. Uh, to challenge his ballot uh, access in something like 20 states at once. So, you know, they will stop at nothing. They are desperate. They're desperate because they know that their days are numbered. So this is a real opportunity for everyone, uh, you know, working people, the marginalized, the poor, everyone being thrown under the bus by this very unjust, uh, corporate-sponsored, rapacious oligarchy and the political system that supports us. So this is an opportunity like we've never seen. And the attack of the Democrats, I think, should be seen for what it is, you know, an incredible uh, defensive effort and an, and an attempt to manipulate and extort votes. You know, we're being told to vote based on fear, um, based on, you know, threats of false things that are said to happen. You know, this is wrong. Uh, it's very important for people not to succumb to these, uh, to this threats and uh, intimidation, and for us to stand up for uh, our future, which is very much at stake. Yeah, I guess um, there is. There does seem to be a real public distrust and discontent with the way po- politics is going in the U.S. Not only from Democratic voters, but also from Republicans and independents as well. And yet, I think people are really kind of searching around, looking for some kind of alternative. Ultimately, though, it seems that a lot of people are disengaging from politics rather than finding a third party, which suggests to me that um, perhaps we need some sort of better media system as well, or some (laughs) system of actually reaching people with a different message. What do you what do you think of that? Oh, absolutely. You know, I mean, I think in our 2016 campaign, you know, we were seeing very much the same thing, but we would go and talk you know, to college audiences, for example, and let people know that there is a pathway forward out of student debt, you know, and towards jobs, you know, ensuring that you're going to graduate with your training, um, uh, you know, debt free and with the guarantee of a good job that would make a meaningful contribution to our struggle, you know, with the crises that are just exploding all around us. And we had no trouble engaging people Uh, You know, and our numbers would go up and then they would come down on us with these smear campaigns and, you know, blanket um, uh, really media blackouts. So you're absolutely right. And, you know, more power to uh, Mint Press and the likes of the independent media that really are working against the stranglehold of, of corporate media. And the advantage of the campaign with Dr. West is that he is so well known already by the most disenfranchised um, and, uh, you know, disrespected, dominated communities. He's already there. So it's not like he has to get credibility or get known. So we're extremely excited about um, reaching out to those communities. In fact, since his launch, he's basically been doing media 
almost 24 seven, you know, his waking hours are full of, um, you know, podcasts and Zooms. And he's very much embracing the grassroots and, you know, and the communities of struggle. So it's very exciting, you know, from black farmers to uh, indigenous groups, um, you know, he will be at, um, you know, at just numerous events. We're also beginning a college uh, outreach program right now, and groups are springing up all over the place. So everything I've seen really suggests that this is a different race, you know, that people have really hit the wall and they understand they do not have a future. And, you know, when you are drowning in the water and someone offers you, uh, uh, you know, uh, a life raft, you know, you're going to grab it. You're going to grab it. So the the challenge is to let people know that the life raft is here. In fact, not just a life raft, but a, a, a lifeboat and a whole, you know, a whole other continent of uh, justice and, um, you know, and sustainability that really is within our reach. Yeah, well, we extend the invitation to Dr. West if he wants to come on the podcast or any other show from Impress. We'd be very happy to have him. But before we get back to West, I did want to ask you about a couple of other political characters in the US. Um, there's this big debate, particularly on the left, whether a better strategy would be to go an independent route, have a third party and challenge the Democrats from the outside which is, you know, fraught with difficulties for many reasons, as you've outlined already, or perhaps whether it's better to try and work within the party machine to try and change it from within. In the past decade or so, we've seen quite a lot of figures uh, take this route. Perhaps the two most notable are Bernie Sanders, who came reasonably close to uh, getting the Democratic presidential nomination, and Marianne Williamson as well, who is um, polling reasonably well right now in the Democratic uh, presidential nomination race. What's your opinion about people like Bernie or Marianne who try to uh, disrupt the Democratic Party from within? Yeah, and you know, I'd, I'd add Robert Kennedy, um, RFK yeah. to that list as well. You know, I, I would just say, look at Bernie Sanders' race in 2016 and 2020. You know, he had an exemplary race. Uh, by all rights, he should have won that race had it not been basically rigged out from under him. And that's, you know, according to uh, Donna Brazil, the head of the DNC at the time and others, you know, well-placed in the Democratic Party hierarchy. It's not just the outsiders who said, look, there's just abundant evidence here of election rigging. Um, uh, you know, so uh he, by all rights, did everything right. And he had enormous funding, enormous grassroots support. He had really right on policies that that enjoyed terrific support among the American public. And he really had support across the political spectrum, including people who then went on to to vote for, for Trump after uh, Sanders was knocked out of the race. So you're not going to create a better race than what Sanders had. Um, you know, you can go all the way back to uh, the end of the Second World War, when um, uh, Wallace, what was his first name? I forget. You know, he was the vice presidential candidate under um, uh, under uh, uh, under Roosevelt. You know, when the the microphone was shut off as he was about to be nominated. You know, and the microphone was shut off, and a fire emergency was declared in order to basically block his nomination, which had enormous support. You know, the Democratic Party has been doing this really ever since it clearly became a war party, which was certainly true in the aftermath of the Second World War. You know, we have undertaken like some 68 regime changes uh, since, since the Second World War. This is where, you know, kind of where the party is at. And they are not going to allow uh, a a a peace candidate or a, a candidate who can actually be accountable to the American people. That's not what it's about. That's not what the party's about. It's not what its funding is about. And it has never done otherwise. I think you'd be very hard pressed to put together a better campaign than what Bernie Sanders had. So, you know, it's not going to happen. I think the pathways through the Democratic Party have really been proven um, non-existent. And so then the question becomes, you know, are you going to really stand up and make the kind of change we need? If you're running within the Democratic Party and your campaign does not succeed, it's over. There's nothing left. You build a castle in the sand and the castle's no longer there. 
So you start over from ground zero. What, you know, what's the legacy of Sanders campaign at this point? You know, it's, you know, with the squad, but what happened with the squad? You know, the squad has basically sold out at essentially every turn. So, you know, it's no wonder that Democrats are so incredibly depressed and despondent. I'd say, you know, progressive Democrats to the extent that they exist anymore. So, you know, it's just not an option to my mind. It's not an option. We really have we have to really draw a line in the stand in the sand and we have to start building something. And that's what we can do through uh, an independent um, uh, people powered political party. Mm. Yeah, I think it was Henry Wallace, uh, the vice president you were thinking of, right? Um, So, yeah, um, I guess my follow up to that would be, would you have advised Bernie to try to do an independent movement after perhaps the 2016 election or the 2020 election, try to push that enormous wave into a different direction, into a more independent movement? Or or what, what would you say about that? And also, with regards to the squad, um, if they sold out, did you see that as an inevitable thing or just something that did happen under these circumstances and might have been different under other circumstances? I think the Democratic Party's limits have been tested for quite some time. You know, uh, you can go back to um, the 60s, maybe a little bit into the 70s, you know, when there was this big so-called realignment movement within the Democratic Party. And it was going to bring together labor and the civil rights movement, which were both like kind of at their peak then. They floundered. I mean, that movement, that realignment movement completely floundered. Why? Because of the Vietnam War, because um, they, you know, it became impossible to fight the war within the Democratic Party structure, which was all behind the war. So that movement floundered. You know, we've when you've been around as long as I have watching this stuff, you just see that there are certain patterns here. Uh, and to keep to keep repeating these failed patterns when our chances for surviving are going down the tubes right now. Um, you know, I don't know if you heard the recent scientific report that this uh, ocean circulation in the Atlantic, this is going to affect you guys up there uh, in the UK a whole lot. That is now predicted to stop maybe as soon as 2025. And when that happens, there will be um, uh, just devastating, immediate uh, uh changes in weather patterns. So you're going to freeze up there uh, in uh, Western Europe. Uh, drought will become all the more severe in Africa and Southeast Asia. The uh, equatorial regions, you know, what's hot is going to get much, much hotter. That current right now um, that's circulating um, many areas uh, all over the globe, but especially in the um, uh, in the Atlantic, it's kind of a temperature equalizer and it distributes the extremes of temperature and that's going to stop. It also distributes oxygen through the ocean and keeps the oceans alive. Uh, that's going to stop. And uh, this is absolutely, you know, this is just like the latest shoe that's dropping here. You can also look at the Colorado River here in the United States, which matters. You don't have to live in the co- in Colorado for this to matter. It matters because it feeds California's agriculture system. And that system supplies half the fruits and vegetables here in the United States, half. And that that river system is on the verge of shutting down, not just sort of diminishing, but it's not going to get over the dam uh, where the waters currently goes through the dam and generates electric power. Uh, but it's going to be trapped. It's going to be trapped in this in this uh, big reservoir and it's not going to feed uh, the system we rely on for food here in the United States. The shutting down of that current is also going to accelerate the melt of the uh, ice sheets uh, all over the place, but especially um, in the poles. And so we're looking at greatly accelerated sea level rise, which is going to displace, you know, untold hundreds of millions, maybe billions of people. We've got nuclear power plants all over the coast here, you know, because nuclear power plants need water. You know, we're going to have Fukushima's all over the place. What we're looking at is just staggering. And, you know, I guess 
the bottom line is we can't afford to keep uh, going down paths that have been proven uh, futile. The Bernie Sanders model, he could have, well, he should not have simply sheepdogged people back into the Democratic Party, which he did the moment he endorsed uh, Hillary Clinton. And now that the endorsements from AOC and Bernie and everyone are pouring in to Joe Biden and not even considering the alternatives within the Democratic Party, it just makes it such a mockery of what's going on in the Democratic Party and within our corporate sponsored political system, the best democracy money can buy, which is no democracy at all. We do not have a future, I guess is the point of my rant here. We don't have a future and we can't afford to just sit back and lie down on the railroad tracks here because the train is coming and we are in the pathway. So for our own survival, it's really important you know, to stand up and not allow this to just wash over us. Well, yes, I agree. But a lot of uh, people, well-intentioned people would say that um, the Green Party doesn't stand a chance specifically because of the Democratic dirty tricks that they t they always seem to pull out every four years against you. Um, are you ready to fight those tricks, uh, keeping you off the ballot, etc.? Uh, what What's your position on that? Oh, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think we're going to make uh, Ralph Nader's campaigns look like a walk in the park. You know, not only the incredible false smear campaigns that were waged against him, but also the court cases to throw him off uh, off the ballot. So we are attempting, you know, to anticipate all of this right now, which means, you know, we have to raise the funds uh, in order to fight back um, and to line up the attorneys that we're going to need uh, to fight because we know what they do. We know what their tricks are. Uh, it's not hard to expose their dirty tricks. We also have to anticipate them and make sure that we have extensive margins of safety in all of our, our ballot drives. The exciting thing is that there's enormous public support to do this right now. Uh, we've had some, oh God, what is it? I think it's around 10,000, 11,000 volunteers sign up on the website, and many of them have volunteered for ballot access. So we are in the process of training people so that we can actually you know, uh, get the numbers that we need to uh, secure our position uh, on the ballot. And we are aiming to be a 50-state uh, campaign, not just a token campaign. Yeah, what's the situation with uh, the Green Party being on the ballot? How many states right now will be able to vote for a Green candidate, whether that's West or someone else? Yeah, so our ballot access laws are designed to suppress competition except for the two major parties. So they basically have a guaranteed position on the ballot. We have to collect tens of thousands of signatures, hundreds of thousands, you know, across the United States. So um, after each election, we kind of get kicked back. So we're somewhere around, I don't know if it's 16, 18 or 19, something on that order. Uh, but we have ballot drives that are actually in the process right now. They're in the works and they're going strong. So we're hoping, you know, to have our numbers up, you know, to 25 within a month or two and to go up from there. Uh, our ballot drive is going stronger right now uh, and faster than it ever has in any prior election. So we're very excited about um you know, really changing the playing field here in the ballot access drives. Mm, okay. Um, so in recent times, let's get back to Dr. West. Um, there have been quite a lot of media articles suggesting that Democrats are actually really quite concerned that West has chosen to run as the presidential candidate for the Green Party, specifically because of his public recognition, his, uh, his long, tireless advocacy for all sorts of uh, issues. Do you think that's a real concern for the Democrats. Do you think they really do fear him and why? Oh, they absolutely do. And they should, you know, they should because the numbers show, uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, that 62% uh, of uh, Americans want a third party, that people no longer identify uh, with the parties. There are as many independents 
uh, as there are Democrats and Republicans put together. Um, there's a huge block that doesn't vote. It's almost 40 percent of voters that don't vote. And who is it? That's communities of color. That is uh, young people. That's people who've basically been thrown under the bus. It's low income people who don't vote. And that's exactly who Dr. West speaks to. And those are the demographics that are just wildly excited about his race. So we could see voting really change, you know, and um, uh, James Carville and uh, I, I think uh, Axelrod, David Axelrod, you know, he was the first to say, wake up, Democrats. Uh, you know, uh, Cornell West is, you know, is uh, a real threat. Basically, he's saying he is a threat to our uh, stranglehold on the political system. He's a threat to the old guys network, the old white guys network. You know, and it's really the old white guys who are kind of... Um, shouting out now, you know, these words of warning, and they're right to be very worried. They have already lost the battle. And you can go back to the numbers in Obama's midterm, you know, to see how much the Democrats have lost the, ba the battle, even before the Greens were, you know, a threat. The Greens didn't have anything to do with uh, you know, state legislatures in 50 states losing a thousand Democratic seats. That wasn't because of Green Party challenge. It's because, um, you know, they have lost uh, the support of uh, everyday people. And if you look at polls among young people, you know, young people are not happy campers. It's something like 50% of young people who say that they are clinically depressed and hopeless. Uh, looking at their odds for a survivable future. And among them, it's something like, um, you know, 25% of young people who uh, have considered doing harm to themselves in like the last two to three week period. So this is not a small thing. You know, this is a world that's not surviving. This is a world that's been ruled over by, by, um, uh, the uh, predatory uh, oligarchy by the rapacious oligarchy. And people are really ready to change that. That is why uh, Dr. West is such a beacon of hope. And people are mobilizing to really put full force behind his campaign. The Democrats are right to be concerned. But I think their stranglehold on public opinion, you know, it just doesn't exist anymore. If you look at mainstream media, you know, what's the support for mainstream media? It's like around 14, 16%, something like that. It's lowest in, in the U.S. among all the developed countries. The opinion of, of our media is absolutely in the toilet. So to be, you know, vilified by mainstream media is not the big, the big deal that it was at a time that people re respected that institution. Now people have zero respect for that institution. So they're tools for uh, propaganda and for uh, uh, manipulating and uh, bullying the public and trying to bully our votes. Uh, I think they get smaller all the time. Yeah, I agree that um, mainstream media, the public confidence in it is absolutely in the toilet right now. However, I am worried that if there is not any counterbalance to the mainstream media, if people are just hearing smears about West and nothing else, uh, then that is a real problem. When we had someone like Donald Trump in 2016, Trump had this huge media ecosystem on uh, social media platforms like Facebook that were feeding tens of millions of Americans positive news about Trump that directly uh, went against everything you heard on CNN or ABC or even Fox at some points uh, before it switched and decided to uh, support him after he got the, the presidential bid. So I'm slightly worried about that. Um, another thing I was wanting to ask you about is um, what do you think about um, Dr. West not having any direct political experience? I mean, I know he's been in politics more generally with a, a lowercase p for decades and decades, but do you think that is a, a positive in his step that he's not a career politician or is it uh, also bring drawbacks as well? You know, I, I think it it cuts both ways. And also to your point about the media system, yes, I I totally agree. You know, it's really incumbent on the campaign to run strong uh, social media and to help lift up alternative media. You know, it's again, it's the likes of uh, Mint Press and Consortium News and Gray Zone and, you know, just the reporters with real integrity out there, you know, Glenn Greenwald, uh, Matt Taibbi, um, Katie Halper, you know, there are real alternatives out there. And it's really important that 
we support this alternative media ecosystem. Um, you know, and and uh, Dr. West, I think, is going to be very much a part of that uh, media ecosystem as well. But you're right. I mean, this is by no means a guaranteed success. You know, it's going to be a fight every step of the way, but it's a different fight, I think, than it's ever been before because people really see that they are you know, at the, uh, at the leading edge of this fight, you know, we are the victims of, of this system as it's crashing, as it exists, you know, but we're also the beneficiaries of any change that we can bring to it. And I think that's extremely, um, uh, motivating in terms of political experience. Yes, you're right. I mean, uh, Dr. West is not a career politician and so people trust him inherently. Uh, you know, he's got, uh, a team around him and that team is being built out right now by, uh, advisors, that uh, you know can really help inform his positions and his strategy and so on. So the campaign is very young. Uh, again, I'd say that like if he was he was just uh, preparing for a launch as of uh, June, whatever it was, tenth, something like that. When when he moved into the Green Party, that was essentially when we began our preparation. So we're still fleshing out the campaign, but now you know having to do it kind of uh, in the bright lights, which makes it always more you know more complicated because it's a real functioning campaign now. At the same time, we're pulling together its infrastructure and its basic policies and strategy and so on. So you know, I'd say we'll see how this uh, develops, but the enthusiasm and uh, the you know, the the vision and the sense of community behind it is just uh, staggering and very exciting. So, you know, we will certainly be mindful of needing a team of political experience. And I couldn't underscore that that more. It's very challenging for people to run for office and start at the presidential level, you know, especially if they are not machine candidates. If you have a machine, it's dictating everything for you and providing the money and uh, your policies and your advisors and your staff and all that. It's totally different when you're coming from a grassroots independent third party. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, the United States does have a presidential system whereby the man in the White House does have an awful lot of power to affect change. But I wonder if uh, we might even part of us, uh, part of our conversation should really not be uh, reflected all about just uh, getting one person into the White House. And instead, if we're talking about building counter power, we should really be talking about building all sorts of like, I, mean, I don't want to use the word machine, but should you not be thinking should we not be thinking even more about, you know, local races for mayors, city councils, state legislatures, et cetera? Because I feel like uh, if somebody by some miracle does get into the White House who's a person of the people, they will be undercut by the media, the Republican Party, the Democratic Party, uh, you know, the police, uh, all sorts of like organized centers of power, business, et cetera. Uh, so really the the sense is that it would have to be like this enormous swell and movement of elected officials uh, at all sorts of levels to actually help someone like West uh, if he were indeed to win the presidency. Exactly. And I would add to that also, we need a movement, you know, we need a really strong social movement and kind of unified social movement so that we can actually harness uh, the power of our numbers. Because we you know, the social movements are extremely strong, you know, and the uh, rebellion going on within the ranks of labor right now is also very strong and exciting. But, you know, there's this counter force of the establishment uh, forces within labor and climate and, you know, healthcare, you name it. There's really a um, kind of uh, an astroturf you know, there's a whole network of astroturf organizations that pretend to be grassroots, but which, which really are not grassroots and which are funded by the usual suspects. So there's a very dynamic, you know, uh, battle going on here, really, in every division. And what Dr. West's life has been about, really, is building the true grassroots movements. And he's very much aligned with them. And they need to be empowered and, um, you know, enhanced and uh, brought into greater collaborations so that we have both a movement that's acting as a driver. You know, Obama, classically, he he was all about the movement until he got elected. And then he basically sent his ground troops, you know, scattering. So there was no movement to kind of hold him accountable. This is all about creating um, that movement and building that movement 
and also focusing on candidates at every level. And, you know, I will say that for the Green Party, that really is most of where we do our work. It's at the local level. And we have, you know, uh, we've elected well over a thousand candidates over the past decade or two to lower office, really up to the level of state legislatures. And that's where the focus continues to be, although the biggest impact on public dialogue is always at the presidential level. So we, you know, we try to do both. But I think people like myself, you know, I ran for office for national office twice and really saw how hard it is not only to run, but then to preserve your momentum after the run too, because they will come, you know, COINTELPRO is alive and well, and and the forces of opposition uh, are very strong against independent parties. Typically, independent parties last 10 years maximum, and then they're wiped off as national forces. So you could look at, you know, the socialist parties that were very strong in the early 1900s. Now they have, they hold sway like in a city council here or there. They do not have ballot status. They really cannot contest at the national level. Same is true for the Labor Party. There was a third party as the Labor Party that was launched with, you know, uh, great status, support, uh, infrastructure, the same time that the Green Party launched in the 1980s. But the Labor Party was basically wiped off the map. They never essentially even got out of the box. Um, uh, the predecessor of the Green Party, the first environmental party, was the so-called uh, Citizens Party, which was running with a renowned uh, ecologist for president. They lasted for about two cycles. Uh, Rocky Anderson, the former mayor of Salt Lake City in Utah, he uh, founded the Justice Party in 2012, which came out with a lot of fanfare. And it lasted for about, you know, one election cycle. This is typically what happens to independent third parties. There is no place for them. They are systematically suppressed, kept off the ballot, unfunded, not covered by media, considered really uh, a hostile force to the um, uh, rapacious oligarchy. So they're really snuffed out. The Green Party has managed to survive. We are not a pillar of strength, you know, that people would want to see and that we need. But that's not, you know, that's not for lack of uh, momentum and um, uh, vision and so on in the party. You really have to view the party within this ecosystem that is systematically pummeling forces of resistance. So we have managed to survive to a time when we have been completely vindicated in terms of, you know, we need a Green New Deal. We need to address the climate as a survival issue. We need healthcare as a human right. Ralph Nader put that on the map in his uh, 2000 run. You know, so we have really been advancing uh, the progressive agenda since we've been here, and they've not managed to snuff us out. Uh, and I think history is validating that we need what the Greens have started to build. We'd like to work with the other independent left parties as well and build the coalition among us. We don't see one party as the solution here. We see multipartisan democracy uh, as the solution. And um, you know, that's that's really what what the struggle is about. And that is very much what many of us are mindful of as we are moving forward with this very promising campaign at you know, at at an unprecedented moment, we're really in this perfect storm right now for transformative change, and we need to harness that for all it's worth. Well, Jill Stein, two-time presidential candidate for the Green Party, I want to be conscious of the time limits. So I do want to just ask you, in the end, do you have any message to readers or viewers listening to this right now? Oh, I'd say please come and visit us at... Um, cornellwest24.org and join the movement because the movement is us. We, you know, this is that lifeboat we need and the waters are rising fast uh, and we have to take action. I'd say reject the, um, you know, this notion of, of a lesser evil. The lesser evil is over. Uh, the Democrats are leading the charge on war, on censorship. They've abandoned their uh, commitments to climate, to health care. Uh, uh, immigrant rights and so on. You know, we need to forget the lesser evil and fight for the greater good, like our lives depend on it. 
because in fact they do. And we have the opportunity of a lifetime right now to truly take hold of this system and transform it for all it's worth. Jill Stein, thank you very much for being on the Mintcast today. My pleasure. Really great talking with you, Alan. Great. My pleasure as well. All right. You are listening to another edition of the Mintcast, the podcast from Mint Press News. We're currently doing our annual funding drive over on Indiegogo. And so if you are in an economic position to help us, we would love it if you could. Things have started reasonably well, but we need support from uh, viewers and listeners like you to get us over the line. If you're not in an economic position to do that, you can still help us by liking our streams or our videos or sharing our content with your friends. Until next time, peace out.